Morning. 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 We on? Working? Test, test. Still not there. Oh, I hear me. Yay, this week it works. I was going to say leave it to Pauline to find a way to hug in a pandemic. Somebody in a parka. All right. Um, it's interesting, you know, we, we work our way, good to see you guys, we work our way through our lectionary, um, and I, I think what's fascinating for me to see, we, we kind of plan out the text that we work, or at least the general direction. Last summer, I'm sitting down and I'm working my way through our season of foundations, planning sermons, planning text for the, the, the certain Sundays, and I'm not looking at anything other than just kind of going through the text and saying, okay, maybe that one, maybe that one. Well, isn't it fascinating that the text today has to do with the transition of power? Now, is that happening anywhere else in the world at this moment? You know, it's just, it's, it's a reminder to me that God guides our steps in, in funny ways sometimes. So, oh, we've been looking at the problem with kings, the monarchy, this period of time in Israel's history when they have these kings, and the struggles that they go through. Uh, good and bad in that situation. And many of us have been watching some election that happened all week. But now we're going to turn our, our, our focus back to the story of God, to his people and their leaders, and listen to what the Spirit might be saying to us. So we saw Solomon last week as he celebrated the dedication of the temple. His kingship continues for about another 20 years or so before he dies. And depending on whether you read that in Kings or Chronicles, he's either a really good guy or a really bad guy. And that's that's what Irv's been talking about in our Sunday school class. There is some space today if you want to stay for that uh, or watch it online. Uh, but we're going to move over all of Solomon's last 20 years and we're going to jump to the place after he's died and his son Rehoboam is being established as king. It's in 2 Kings chapter 12. We're going to read the text in two chunks. We're going to start with verses 1 to 24 of 1 uh, Kings, excuse me, 1 Kings 12. 1 to 24, and then we'll get the last part of the chapter in just a few minutes. Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon, went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard that this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants." But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And he asked them, what's your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? And the young man who'd grown up with him replied, tell these people who've said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young man, and he said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. 
to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. And when all Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. And King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of the forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. And when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. ordered. Now we're going to get back to the rest of that in a minute. but, But the thing is, there's a change in leadership here. Solomon to his son Rehoboam. And a change, as our friends to the south might tell you, may be difficult, but it always is an opportunity for a new beginning. Anytime there's a change in leadership, there's an opportunity. Or is it? <laughs> the text, as you read it closely, makes it clear that there's in, in Israel and Judah. Now, Israel are these 10 tribes kind of up to the north. Judah typically is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin to the south around Jerusalem. In this nation, under Solomon, there's an appearance of unity, but a reality of division. An appearance of unity, but a reality of division. I remember when I was a kid, I was flipping through a magazine. I don't know, people out of Newsweek something years ago. And there was an ad with a picture in it. And the picture, look, this is kind of a modern equivalent to what the picture looked like. Oh, can't really tell. Okay, yeah, I can't see it there. It's, it's better there. I remember, I, I think my first reaction was, I would probably be the person in the middle in this picture. But this idea that, that somebody thinks they're in a relationship here and they're not. There's an appearance of unity from one, but there's also the reality, there's a division, right? Uh, Rehoboam has gone to Shechem. You can take that picture off now. In verse 1, he's gone to Shechem. It says, for all the Israelites, this this whole country, north and south together, have gone there to make him king. And and they come to this place. It's really important. Shechem is the place that, that Yahweh first appeared to Abraham when he was in the promised land. And he said, I'm going to give you this whole land. That happened there. And Jacob later settled there. Joseph said, I want you to take my bones and I want you to bury them there. That's where his bones were buried. And when they entered the promised land, Shechem was the place where the entire nation of Israel, coming out of Egypt, wandering through the desert, comes into the promised land and they rededicate themselves to keeping the law of Yahweh at Shechem. So it's a very important place. And the whole nation has come to make Rehoboam the king there. But there's, so there's this appearance of unity. We're all together, but there's also this underlying division. You get it in verse 4. The the northern tribes and Jeroboam say, your father Solomon put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harshly you put on you. This is Jeroboam saying this. You can read his story back in chapter 11. He used to be, for Solomon, one of the leaders in Solomon's um, administration. In fact, he was in charge 
of all the labor force. That's the nice way of saying the people that had been conscripted to work for the king. He was their boss of the whole labor force. That was Jeroboam's job. And one day as he was heading home, he meets this prophet, Ahijah. And Ahijah, it says in chapter 11, had just gotten a brand new cloak. And yet at that moment, he takes his brand new cloak off and he rips it into 12 strips. And he says to Jeroboam, you take 10. Because God's going to take 10 of the tribes away from Solomon and give them to you, but not yet. And Solomon hears about this. And like the good King Solomon would, when you hear that somebody's going to take your, your throne, he sets out to kill Jeroboam, and Jeroboam runs to Egypt to hide. Well, we read in our text that after Solomon dies, Jeroboam comes back, and he, he and the ten tribes go to Rehoboam and say, you've got to take it easy on us. See, the country has done really well under Solomon, incredibly wealthy. It all looks great, but the reality is a lot of that is the taxation on the people and the forced labor, especially of the ten northern tribes. See, a country can look great and build it on the backs of its people. And that's kind of what's happened through Solomon's reign. And Rehoboam says, give me a few days to think this over. And you know, he goes by and he talks to the old guys who consulted his, with his father, Solomon, and he gets advice from them. And then he goes to his buddy and, uh, buddies and they tell him, no, do the other thing. And he has this choice between either coercive power or servant leadership. The older advisors in verse 7, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. If you are kind to them and serve them as a leader, they'll be with you. And the younger guys say, tell them, my dad was nothing. You know, my little finger is thicker than my dad's waist. I am way more forceful. And he scourged you with a whip and I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. Now, scorpion is actually, in that term, is, is a type of whip with embedded metal in it. So it wasn't, they weren't really, I mean, it's a metaphor, but it's also, they know what he's talking, it's going to get worse. And there's these two different paths. There's, there's this option of peace through compassion and servant leadership, or, in a common term today, peace through strength. I'm going to, I'm going to be the strong one. You're going to do what I say. And you see what Rehoboam does. And so it ends up dividing the kingdom. He makes the wrong decisions in an attempt to show his power. And in verse 16, they say, What share do we have in you, David? What part in Jesse's son? Israel, to your tents. David, you guys in the south, you can take care of yourselves. We're done. But there were a number of Israelites who were still living in the southern areas, right? And so it says Rehoboam is still ruling over this region, but the ten tribes, most of them are back home in the north. See, there's, there's a lot of reasons he could have decided to go this way. But the bottom line is he's going to show them who's boss. He's going to use his strength to lead. And, and, and the problem is that these kinds of displays of power don't work well sometimes, especially within the sovereignty of what God is doing. It's, it's a pattern that we see over and over in leaders, uh, and, and he continues that pattern. Even after they split, there's another attempt at control. In verse 16, they leave, and in verse 17, it says, but there were some Israelites living around Jerusalem, the forced labor people that had been conscripted. And it, it says he sends out Adoniram, the guy who had Jeroboam's old job, who was in charge of his forced labor. He sends him out and says, okay, get these people to work. And did you see what they did? They killed him. 
And the king barely escapes back to his palace. He, he, he makes another attempt to control. I'm going to get you guys working for me. And it doesn't work. And then he decides, well, I, I've got to do something. So he gathers these huge mass of soldiers from Judah and from Benjamin, 180,000 men. And they're going to go north. They're going to take the kingdom back until the word comes from God. Uh-uh, guys, this is what I said was going to happen. You'd be smart not to go. And so they back, they retreat. They don't go. Now, at this moment, I'm just going to touch on this briefly. There's this tension between God's sovereignty and human choice, right? Because way back in chapter 11, we see that story of Jeroboam getting the 10 strips of the cloak. And, and God calls that Jeroboam's going to be the leader. And then it happens as a result of Rehoboam's choice to reject the, the peaceful settlement. And in our text, we see in verse 15, the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. And in verse 22 and 24, again, God says, don't fight, this is me. Now, the question is here, did all this happen because God decided it would happen or because Rehoboam made a really stupid mistake? That's, that's the question, isn't it? Because if God had already decided, what choice did Rehoboam have? Did it happen because God decided or because Rehoboam was stupid? And my answer is yes, it did. And, and I don't know how we can reconcile that necessarily because we don't like that idea that God would decide things and it doesn't leave us any choice. In my own life, I have to go back to a story. Years ago when I went for a, a year, year and a half, 14 months as a missionary to Mexico, I was just graduating from university. I had a job offer at a big <coughs> church in, as a youth pastor in Mississippi uh, and it was going to be a good job and great youth group and good money and a place to stay and all kinds of good things. And yet I was sensing God wanted me to go back and, and do a year term with this short-term mission. And I really didn't want to go because it just, I'd been there for a summer and I, I liked it, but I just, it wasn't, it just didn't look as good as this other option. But you know what? I, I, I eventually had to, every morning I would get up and I'd look myself in the mirror and I thought, if you go to Mississippi instead of Mexico, you'll never be able to look yourself in the eye again. Because I knew, I knew I had to go to Mexico. And I remember going to the top of this mountain and spending a whole afternoon just praying and just begging God to say, let me, let me go where I want to go. And, and it's one of those situations where in my life I realized there's a ton of times where I think God gives me full leeway to make decisions, but there are times where he has decided. And it's my choice to surrender to that. And I don't really have an option. I think sovereignty is God setting the parameters for where the world is going. And we have choice within that. But we're always going to be guided by his sovereignty. It says in Proverbs 16, 9, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. And it's a tension. You're never going to settle that completely. It keeps us humble. I think that's part of it. God's doing something with Israel. He has a plan. And the decisions of the king factor into that. We don't always understand how or why it all works, but that's what's happened. And after this that we read, the text moves to the northern part, from Jerusalem up to Jeroboam and the northern tribes. Let's just flip over to verse 25 and read to 33, and then we'll try to pull together some applications out of this. First uh, Kings 12, 25. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And from there he went out and built up Peniel. And Jeroboam thought to himself, the king will now likely revert to the house, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord. Rehoboam, king of Judah, they will kill me 
and returned to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. And Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now, I thought about stopping at verse 24 and just having that one portion. (laughs) But you have to see the relevance of this new kingdom up north and what it says to us today. Because one of the things it demonstrates really clearly is that power seeks to use religion. Power seeks to use religion. After the kingdom splits in two, Jeroboam has these legitimate concerns. These guys are all going to go back to Jerusalem for the festivals. They're all going to go back to the temple. And when they do, not only is all my revenue and income going back to Rehoboam's territory, but they're going to like that. And eventually they're going to reunite and I'm going to die. So he comes up with another option for these faithful Jews, because the one thing that's holding the Jewish people, the one common thread they have is Yahweh and their faith and the temple. And so he sets up two altars, one in Bethel, which is right on the border of the northern and southern kingdom, and one in Dan up on the northern end at the far top of the kingdom of Israel. Now, I love this because Angela and I actually went to the the site in Dan. There's a picture there. Um, Obviously, that metal welded thing is not the altar. It's just showing you where it was. But the the foundation is still there from when Jeroboam set up this altar. There's a little video clip too. You can't really hear the guy talking. For example, the kings of Israel, in this case Jeroboam, didn't like the idea that all the money and the sacrifices are going to Jerusalem because the priests over there, they had the the monopoly over the communication channel. sin. What he's done is wrong. And power will often use religion to reinforce itself, to stay in power. It was true then. I want you to see something. Like when we see this, you think, oh, this is radically evil. How could could the people fall for this? How could they start worshiping these golden calves? Well, really, it's a manipulation with a veneer of faithfulness. He sets up these two golden calves, one in the south, one in the north, and it, that, that is a literary hat tip back to Aaron setting up the golden calf in the wilderness. But you've got to understand, the Canaanite deities would see these images, or the Canaanite peoples would see these images as a pedestal for the presence of their God to hover over it. The idea in building the calf wasn't so much we're worshiping this golden calf as it was as we're we're, we're presenting a place where our God will come and sit. Now, if you're listening and you understand the Ark of the Covenant, same idea. We've got this object here with the, the cherubim on top and the, the presence of God is over it. So he's, he's got this veneer of faithfulness. And you may say, well, it says gods. Here's your gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Well, he's using the Hebrew term Elohim which is a weird term. It's a plural for gods, but it's also used in Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. 
Like he's, he's saying, he's tying these acts. He's giving them this veneer of faithfulness. We're still worshiping Yahweh. We're just doing it here and there. It's too much for you guys to go there. I'm going to make this easier for you. He was manipulating them, but there was this veneer that made it look faithful. And he did it in the way that people use religion to maintain power today. He, he was using imitation of religious forms. Now, what do I mean by that? He used very religious things, altars, these golden calves, these priests. He started his own festival. They brought offerings. He takes things that look very similar to the Jewish faith, and he uses them to solidify his power and what he wants. The same things happen here. The same things in very subtle ways today. Power can use these to manipulate people of faith. Rituals, language, and I wish, oh boy, I wish I could spend, maybe we'll do a whole Sunday school series on this. It's a bit too, uh, maybe too controversial to spend a whole lot of time on it this morning. But I want to touch on it and get you to think about it. Because I, I want you to realize, you know, we talk about this God-shaped void. Every human being has a religious impulse. There's something in us that longs for something bigger. We all have it. And what power will do is they will use that, the forms of religion to, to connect with that religious impulse in people to entrench their power. Now, sometimes this is an actual person doing this. Sometimes it's the nature of principalities and powers that evil works this way. That's what it does. It tries to connect you. It tries to lure you in. I'll give you three quick examples. One kind of silly one controversial and one that's going to hit you right between the eyes if it maybe it hits me. The, the silly one, sports teams. Professional sports teams, right? Teams use rituals and forms to give this holy sense of spirituality to what they're doing. And you may laugh at that. But, but there's these, you know, we, we, we stand, we cheer, we wave flags. We go to big arenas to celebrate victory and to mourn losses. It's a religious format. That helps us buy into the team. And then you have fanatics who wear the uniforms and get the posters and paint their faces. This is all trying human need to connect with something beyond ourselves. And it's being used, maybe not maliciously, but it's being used to entrench the power of this sport or organization. One that's more controversial is, is, is the way countries, nations, governments use ritual to link faith and a certain country. Things like solemn moments. It's a very religious experience. And when a country uses that, it, it connects with us on a very deep level. <laughs> Dare I say it, pledges are rituals, right? And countries can use those to connect with that religious impulse. I'm not saying pledges are bad. I'm just saying we've got to realize what can happen. Uh, how they build monuments, how they build uh, official buildings can, can connect with us in a religious way. I went years ago to Washington, D.C. Um, and went to the Lincoln Memorial. I love Abraham Lincoln. I think he was a great man. And the Lincoln Memorial is stunning. I, I, I was blown away. But you'd have to be a fool not to see the parallels between the Lincoln Memorial and a temple. I mean, it looks like a temple to Lincoln with with his words embedded in the wall. I, I loved it. But you've got to realize it's a religious experience. 
And, and you've got to be careful because power will use religious experiences to entrench itself for good and for evil. The use of biblical phrases in political speeches. And, you know, you Canadians, I know you're all sitting back there pointing at the Americans. You do it too. There's religion and all through Canadian politics. It's a fact of nature. Politics will appeal to that religious impulse, that desire for us to be connected to something greater, to use us. And it can get even worse when our political party becomes linked with our faith. Just be careful there. Here's the one that hits closest to home, and this is a little more subtle. It's, it's hard, and I didn't even think about this when I was starting, but it just hit me as I kept reflecting. We often attach our, our moral positions to our faith. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Faith obviously calls us to act in moral ways. We are to obey Scripture. But how many times has the church linked the whole of its faith to a moral practice? How many of you Mennonites go to movies now? How many of you 50 years ago wouldn't have gone to movies as a Mennonite? And, and there's a whole generation that once that whole thing got questioned, people chucked. They said, well, ugh, my faith can't be just not going to movies, right? What they've done is they've linked the practice of their faith with a moral position. And when that moral position doesn't hold up, when people realize it's probably not as bad as we thought it was, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but then it... The, the faith kind of falters. And, and what gets worse is when we use our moral positions to look down on people who make different moral choices. And we actually, the power, this is, this is one, it's very ethereal. I'm trying to explain this. But the nature of evil will take our morality and use it to make us unkind to people who don't hold the same standard of morality. We will be very unchristlike, sometimes even hateful, to people who are different than us. And you see what that's doing is it's power, dark power, evil power, Satan, I think, using our religious form in a way that gives him power for us to be unchristlike. We feel completely vindicated in judging, hating, being, being unkind to other people because they hold a different moral position than we do. That, that really hit me because I realized even the principalities and powers will try to appeal to us on a religious basis to make us feel superior so that we're not like Christ. Subtle issues, we often don't even notice them in our lives, which brings me to this application part of the sermon. We see what Rehoboam and Jeroboam did was wrong, and we want to do right. But the question is, how do we identify and live out kingdom truth in the middle of a divided world? There's no doubt that our world is divided. How do we live kingdom truth in a world that tries to pull us to one side or the other. We've watched these elections recently. It's, it's helped us realize that issues of power and control are, are still a big deal to us. So how do we apply this text to our own lives? We start by looking at the decision that Rehoboam made to tell people, you know, you think my dad was hard to live with? Wait till I show up. Something was happening in him at that moment that happens to us each, each day multiple times, I think. And that was the inner battle for the kingdom. In that moment, he was in a struggle that we go through day to day to surrender what we want and our agenda and how we think things should happen to the way God calls us to, to live. He was having an inner battle in regards to how he was going to rule. What decision am I, am I going to be in charge or am I going to be a, a servant leader, which is weak 
and vulnerable feels like. You know, some, it happens for a multiple reasons. Sometimes it's just out and out defiance. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And maybe that's what Rehoboam did. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care what you think. I'm taking care of me. I'm going to call the shots. Sometimes it happens from insecurity. I've got to look strong. I'm the new king. If I, if I give in too much, when are they going to stop? I've, I've, there's this insecurity. And so he has to come out strong to combat that. And every day we have to decide who is the leader in my life. How am I going to do things? Who am I going to surrender to? You know, Peter, remember Peter said to Jesus, you're the Messiah. But then right after that, it became clear Peter wanted Jesus to be his kind of Messiah because Jesus said, they're going to they're do all these things to me. And Peter's like, that'll never happen. In Mark 8, 33, Jesus turns, looks at his disciples, rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter had a moment where he said, you're the Messiah. But then the question was, what, who is the Messiah? What's the Messiah like? And Peter's like, that's not the Messiah. And Jesus said, no, 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 Peter, you're thinking your way. There's this inner battle for the kingdom going on in you. And there may be a situation where you need to forgive somebody and, and there's an inner battle. There may be a situation where you need to offer forgiveness to somebody that's hurt you. The inner battle for the kingdom has to be waged there. And you know, this, this story also gives us insight into the way to win those battles. The, you know, the advisors in verse 7, if you will be a servant to those people and serve them, they will always be on your side. Well, this is exactly what Jesus taught us, right? One of the key ways we keep focused on kingdom truth in a divided world is we value service over control. We value service over control. The, 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 the young advisors thought that being a king was about control. The older guys, they had seen Solomon. They knew that people needed a break. They were, they were wise beyond their years, and they knew that serving the people was way, that was the way better way to approach this. And it's a kingdom value. And Jesus said in Mark 10, you know that there are those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles. They lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. See, the whole Old Testament points toward that, that call of Jesus to lead in a whole different way as a servant to value service over control. Gary just read, your attitude, Philippians 2.5, should be the same as Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus had control, but he laid it down. So we've got to value service over control, and we've got to look for fruit and not forms. We get them confused. Jesus says in Matthew 7, every good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus by your fruit you will recognize them. Nobody disagrees that we all know that. Yes, the problem is, I mean, we know we need to recognize good fruit. We need to be able to bear good fruit. We know that. The problem is we get sidetracked by forms, religious forms, and we think those are fruit. We think going through the religious motions, showing up. Let me just, the Bible does not say coming to church is a fruit. It may be inspired by the fruit of the Spirit. But just because you show up here, that doesn't mean that's a fruit. Even knowing the Bible is not a fruit. When the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, what does it say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. When we get fruit mixed up with forms, we go through the motions, we're doing religious things, but there's no love, joy, there's none of that spirit in it. It's more about control. It's more about power. It's more about pride and arrogance sometimes than it is about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's what Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. We need to look in our own lives and we need to assess what we're doing. Is it actually producing fruit or am I just going through religious motions? When, when countries or, or powers appeal to us to, to adopt forms, we need to realize what is the fruit being produced by this? Are people looking more and more like Jesus because of the way we're living? Jeroboam had people doing religious acts on, in the north and the south, both sides of his country. They had altars and priests and sacrifices. They had festivals, but they were just going through the motions. There's no real fruit of repentance there. And I, I'll be honest, as followers of Jesus, we need to be skeptical of religious power. I, I, I use the word skeptical for, it's a healthy skepticism. I'm not talking about being cynical. But I'm saying when our goal is for, to have religious power, we get really skewed really quickly. We are followers of the one who has power. You see, but it's not something we need to be concerned about, our power in a situation. We need to be concerned about following that one, letting our life reflect his, and sometimes that will lead us to ways that don't seem powerful at all. I mean, it led Jesus to a cross, the most powerless of all places. Our political power is jeopardized. Well, God's not worried when our political power is jeopardized. I, he doesn't seem too upset. He lets it happen. We don't get the things we want done. Well, you know, it's not always up to you. When you, when you can't accomplish, when you're, you feel like I'm powerless in this situation, you know what Paul says? When I'm weak, he's strong. It's, it's, it's through my weakness that the power of God actually comes out. So, so when, we, when we're craving this religious power, when we're saying we have to be in control, when we have to be the one driving the ship here, we need to be skeptical of that because that's not the way Jesus did things. He surrendered to the Father's will, even after feeding the 5,000. Remember that? He fed the 5,000. He went up on the mountain to pray because, it says in John 6, 15, Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. He was skeptical of power, the way the world uses power. So what do we do? We, we follow his example. Even if it leads us to places of powerlessness, that's what I see in the scripture. That's what we're called to do. We focus on the fruit of the Spirit and not just the religious forms that we go through. You know, forms aren't bad. I, 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 we talk about the four commitments. That's a religious form. But we want those forms to bring about the fruit of the Spirit. You know, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, O woman, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, when the world's divided, the kingdom calls us to serve instead of control. It calls us to bear fruit instead of just go through religious forms. And it says, you know what, as we do that in our weakness, the power and strength of the one who has power and strength will be displayed in ways that we can't imagine. Let's pray.
God, we, we see a world that is divided. And uh, we see a lot of struggle for power and, and um, wanting to be decision makers. And, and we don't want to be passive. We, we know you call us to engage and to be active. Take a stand to speak truth. But God, I just pray that, that you would help us to discern what it means to follow you what it means to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Help us to see when, when we're being used, when we're being manipulated with, the, with what appears to be faithfulness, and yet it's only a grasping for power. Set us free to follow you regardless of the, the consequences, regardless of the power it brings, regardless of the prestige. Just help us to be servants of Jesus. Help us to keep in mind the things of God and not the things of men. God, it's, it's a very subtle trap, especially when we start using our religion to elevate ourselves over others. Help us to remember that, that you've demonstrated your love to us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And help us to show that same love and mercy that we have received to all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. And the reality is when you start wrestling with the subtle nature of power and religious forms and those kind of things, it, when I first started wrestling with this, it just threw me for a loop because I didn't know what to do. What do I do then? Do I do nothing politically engaging? Do I, do, do I try to do everything? What do I do? And let me just give you a little advice that I've had from the journey. <laughs> you return to Scripture and you seek guidance, you ask God for wisdom. And what I would encourage you today, if you're thinking, well, I don't know what to do. I, I want to be involved. I want to live the truth of the kingdom in a divided world. How do I do it? Go back this whole week, morning, lunch, and evening. Slowly read through Philippians 2. Just read it. Just let it soak into your mind and say, God, show me how I need to live. Where he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God. Didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. You know the rest. The whole point of life is for us to live as Jesus would live here by the power of the Spirit in us, so that God will exalt Jesus in his way in the world and draw people to himself. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.